Hello, and welcome to episode 81 of the Bullock Books podcast. I'm Marshalling Squaley, coming to you as always from Rabat, Morocco, and I'm joined by Ursula Lindsay, who is, as usual, in Amman, Jordan. Hi, Ursula. Hi. And today we're talking about uh, and around Story of the Band book, Nagib Mahfouz's Children of the Alley, which is a book that came out in 2018 from Hamid Shair. And it traces, it's, it started out as a project where uh, Shair was looking for the original manuscript of, of Children of the Alley as written by uh, Nagib Mahfouz before it was serialized in Al-Ahram newspaper. And, um, and the story, the sort of literary detective work that went into that and the whole story of that book from the time it was published in, in uh, originally serialized in Al-Ahram starting in, in September of 1959 until, uh, until it finally uh, was freely available in Egypt. So the story of this book, which, which is, uh, is the, the, the essential driving narrative of, of Shire's book, begins in tw- on the 21st of September, 1959, the day that Children of the Alley began being serialized in Al-Ahram newspaper, uh, having been announced on the front pages of the newspaper about a week before, a, a big event by, by a major author. They even announced that they'd paid him a thousand pounds, which I don't know how much it is in, in current uh, contemporary currency, but, but that it was a lot of money uh, for the right to publish this novel and serialize it in the newspaper. And and this book would go on to be one of the most controversial modern novels in Arabic literature. It would lead indirectly to the assassination attempt on Mahfouz's life. He would face questions about what it meant um, and accusations that it was offensive to religion for the rest of his life uh, and questions about when the book would be published uh, because, as Shoyer explains in his story of this banned book, um, after it was serialized in the newspaper, it then did not appear in Egypt for many decades. Um, so what launched the controversy uh, over Children of the Alley um, was a letter to a magazine complaining about the blasphemous content of this book. And uh, this then led to the media campaigns against Mahfouz and to various religious scholars, uh, particularly at Al-Azhar, such as Sheikh Al-Ghazali and others, issuing formal opinions calling for the book to be banned. Um, and we should say that the, the story of Children of the Alley um, is is begins with a sort of mysterious, powerful uh, father figure called Gabalawi, who exiles two sons from his enchanted home and garden, uh, and then their descendants grow up outside the walls of this garden uh, in an alley that is plagued with all the n- normal forms of human suffering and injustice. And the various chapters uh, feature uh, these sort of figures that do seem to be, you know, modeled on prophets of the major religions, um, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, uh, who 
gather the people around, uh, offer a vision of greater equality. Uh, and then inevitably, though, after these sort of revolutionary emancipatory moments uh, where it seems like things are changing and things are getting better, the alley falls back in this cyclical way into forms of injustice uh, and expropriation. Um, so, and and the fourth figure is seems to sort of be a representative of modern science. Uh, I mean, this is a very simple description of the of the book without getting into its style. Um, it has this sort of timeless quality. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about the actual contents of the book as we proceed. Uh, but that these 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 references to prophetic religious figures are what people found offensive. Um, and so uh, Mohammed Hassanein Haeckel, the journalist and confidant of Gamal Abdel Nasser and editor at Al-Haram, insisted on, on publishing the full story in the newspaper, uh, finishing its serialization. But after this, uh, because of the backlash against it, Mahfouz reached a kind of gentleman's agreement with religious authorities in Egypt in which he promised never to publish the book in Egypt without um, Al-Azhar's agreement, basically. Mm. Um, the, the book was published in 1967 in Beirut, which led once again to renewed criticism of it because copies were arriving in Cairo. Um, I think it's at that point that uh, a semi-official institution called the Islamic Research Academy again called for the book to be banned. Um, and... Uh, Af, when 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 Nagib Mahfouz won, won the Nobel Prize for Literature, once again the issue of this book of Children of the Alley came up. Um, at that point, uh, he was attacked by uh, leaders of more extremist Islamist movements, including uh, Omar Abdul Rahman, um, who said something to the effect. The Salman Rushdie case had already happened, and he said something to the effect that Salman Rushdie would never have dared to write the satanic verses if we had just dealt right. with Nagib Mahfouz. Right. This was taken as implicit encouragement to, to attack Mahfouz, and in 1994, a young uh, Islamist walked up to him while he was sitting in a car with a friend and tried to essentially slit his throat, and did, but did not sever his carotid artery. Um, and so Mahfouz miraculously survived this attack on his life. Uh, and once again, it brought up all these questions around the book and uh, should the book be published finally in Egypt or not? Uh, Mahfouz was actually hesitant at that point to have it published. Um, and it yeah, finally people, people did try and publish it at, at that point without his is okay. I mean, he was forced to testify at this point. It was it was a very difficult time for him, I think. And he didn't want this kind of sensationalistic sort of backlash publication of it. Right. And he always insisted that people had had misread the book. Um, this was a problem of of reading. Um, these are all things that Muhammad Shair's book gets into is, is the way the book was understood, the way it was attacked, the way it was defended. Um, it was finally published, I believe in 2006 in Egypt, uh, after the Mufti of Egypt, the head of, uh, Dar al-Ifta, another 
formal religious institution basically provided support for the book. And Mahfouz had an introduction written by uh, Kamal Abul Magd, who is an intellectual with is with credentials in Islamist communities. And um, so he kind of got a sort of stamp of approval for the book to be to be reissued. And at that point seems to have felt comfortable with that happening. But he was dogged through his entire career with questions um, about this 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 book. And uh, and Mohammed Shoair has done a just absolutely brilliant, beautiful job of, first of all, tracking down all the details of these cases and then analyzing what all this controversy consisted of. Yeah, just fantastic work. So the letter that you mentioned uh, that kind of kicked all this off that was published in, I think, December 1959, was written by this guy, supposedly signed by a guy named Hamid Amin. And, you know, Soon afterwards, there was this kind of was is there really a critic named Muhammad Amin? And there was some reassurance. Oh yes, there really is. I I found him. He lives in Shubra. I can't remember where. Um, but then Shair tries to track down who was this? Where did he? Was there really somebody at this address named Muhammad Amin who wrote this, or was this you know was this was it a fake letter? By somebody else? Was it a faked letter? Um, Which written by somebody fast- else. Which is fascinating because it's not the only instance in Egyptian culture wars in which a letter to the editor kicks off an attack mm. on a writer. He gives another example in the book where the exact same thing happens to Ihsan Abdul Qudus, and we know of a much more recent case with Ahmed Naji. Yes. So you start to wonder if this is a sort of tactic by which these media debates are concocted. And much later in the book, there's an intimation that that it was actually the secret police that brought the book to the attention of Al-Azhar, that the religious right. scholars right. were not reading Mahfouz, so, so that there were sort of forces behind the scenes kind of fomenting uh, this controversy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I just so I just want to say I, I absolutely love this book. I think Muhammad Shair is um, a formidable not just critic and journalist, but also literary historian. Um, he's managing editor of Akhbar al-Adab. Um, he's written about uh, many Egyptian writers in addition to Mahfouz, although he's you know, in the middle of writing this sort of trilogy about Mahfouz and, and different aspects of his work. Um, he's, he studied English literature at Qina, and he's won many awards, including the Dubai Prize for Journalism. And um, this particular book won the Sweerus Prize. And I do remember when it came out in 2018, a number of authors, you know, sometimes Arab Lit does this author's favorites of the year, where we ask people what were their favorite reads. Um, and a number of authors, I know Hamdur Ziada, Mohammed Abdel Nebi, um, uh, named this as their their favorite book of the year in in 2018. Um I I think you know it had a broad impact. I think stylistically it's really um interesting the way he layers in so many different aspects of 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 history a global history to give you this full picture of what what is going on in the moment and and really like bring you in with these characters. I I feel definitely I know Mahfouz, for instance, so well at this point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's a great admirer of Mahfouz and that comes through. 
Um, yes. But it, it is a, a tour de force of, of literary investigative journalism. And like you say, like leaving no stone unturned, going to find out all these things that are said about the book and about how things happen, going back to the beginning and trying to figure out who actually said what, um, you know, Mafuz himself in an interview gave the wrong account of which magazine this letter was published in and, 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 and who wrote it. He didn't remember it correctly. Um, right. But you so, can imagine of if, you know, this kind of, uh, media outburst, or you could say, you know, liken it to sort of a social media storm uh, now, you would, right. you, you know, look back on it many years later and you wouldn't remember how it all began or even what happened. It, you know, I'm sure it happened at such a sort of a high pitch for him. Right. Well, why don't, would you mind reading the opening of the book? Because I think it's a lovely piece of scene setting. Yes, I would love to. 21 September, 1959. A sudden drop in temperature. The weather is almost cold. Autumn clouds cover Cairo's skies. The communists are sitting in prison at Al-Muharraq, but the campaigns against them continue. An unknown burglar breaks into Ibn Hani's vineyard, the poet Ahmed Shelpi's house, on the banks of the Nile at Giza. Among the stolen items are a palm tree made of gold, a gift from Bahrain's ruler to Shoki to celebrate Shoki's installation as the Prince of Poets in April 1927, as well as a silver cup from the feminist union headed by Hoda Sharawi. The newspaper headlines speak of large demonstrations in Iraq against Abdukarim Qasim following the execution of a number of the leaders of the Shawef uprising. The weekly Akhbara Yom leads the most violent of the attacks, vilifying Qasim as the Nero of Baghdad. It also publishes a piece under the title The Accursed Book, stating that Qasim is a follower of the ideas contained in it and claiming that the book, which attacks Islam, has been put together by Soviet intelligence sources. It then devotes a full-page spread to the popular proselytizer Abdel Razak Naufal refuting its ideas. The main photograph is almost in almost all the papers is of Abdel Nasser, accompanied by Abdel Hakim Amir, receiving the greetings of the masses from the window of the train on which they are returning from Rashid to Cairo. Two days previously, Abdel Nasser had delivered a speech at Rashid as part of that city's celebrations of the victories over the British army in 1807. The captions focus on the abolition of feudalism, the distribution of plots of land to farmers, and the launching of Nasser's project for peasant cattle ownership, at the same celebration, Abdel Nasser handed out the prizes to the winners of the On the Road to Freedom competition organized by the Higher Council for Arts and Literature, in which participants had been invited to complete the short story of that name about the Battle of Rashid that Nasser had begun as a high school student, but never finished. A number of newspapers keep up their campaign against what they call the Disciples of James Dean, a small group of young Egyptian admirers of the American actor, 1931 to 55, who shot to global stardom before completing his 24th year. His performance as Jim Stark in the film Rebel Without a Cause, 1955, has made him a youth icon and his shocking demise in a car accident has lent him the glamour of legend, leading young people to imitate both his looks and his clothes. The press campaign accuses the same young people of rebelling against their fathers and their generation, of performing a wanton dance called the cha-cha, of smoking cigarettes and of letting their hair grow long and unkempt. 
Certain preachers in the mosques accuse them of corruption and decadence, while journalists and politicians demand that they be drafted into the army to teach them manners and make men of them. All this uproar has found a willing ear in Abdul Hakim Amir, who has stepped in to deal with the phenomenon, ordering his men of the military police, in his capacity as Minister of Defense, to stop and shave the head of anyone whom they find dancing the cha-cha in a public place or singing Abdul Halim Hafiz's The Boy with Bold Eyes. So this is all things that happen on that day, September 21st, 1959. Right. And at the very end of this long paragraph, we find out that in this, uh, on this day, also Al-Ahram began publication on page 10 of the first installment of Nagib Mahfouz's novel, Awlad Haritna, Children of the Alley. Um, it's a beautiful, and we couldn't read it all. We, we had to jump around in it a little bit, uh, just a wonderful rendering of the atmosphere uh, of the time. And there's intimations of what will be sort of the, the, the issues um, uh, in, in, at this moment of like, you know, a new regime, the new, uh, the Nasser regime, uh, this post-colonial regime, uh, you know, solidifying itself, finding its identity, that this issue of, of censorship and social control uh, will will come to the fore, right? I mean, you have with this with this question of the the military police being called to intervene and discipline the young, uh, and 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 this this question of a literary competition, uh, yeah, in which, sort of state supported literature that you finish a story that <laughs> Abdel Nasser started as a high school right. student, a very propagandistic exercise of a, a, a view of literature very much as tied into, you know, furthering the nationalist goals of, of, of the regime. Um, and, and so this is the context in which, in which Mahfouz's novel comes out. And so Mahfouz, of course, is already very famous for having written the, the Cairo trilogy. And then after the 1952 revolution, he had gone silent for a number of years. Um, and, uh, and he had been thinking about what kind of a book he could, he could write next. And, and Children of the Alley is, is I think a significant departure in both style and content. Mm. Although mm. certain themes reoccur in all of his stories, uh, I mean, the Cairo trilogy is a realist novel that provides this huge social panorama of social change within a family, a neighborhood, and a nation, right? And spans all these decades and has all these de- de- detailed description of basically like really, really, you know. Uh, staggering social change as colonialism ends and 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 education spreads and generations are like have huge divides between them. Children of the Alley is this kind of timeless story, like it's uh, it's sort of out of time. It's not a historically based uh, work. If anything, it sort of seems to imply that the same basic human struggles reoccur again and again. Right. Right. And it's much more in this in this vein of his, uh, you know, later sort of Sufi infused writing, much more symbolic than than the works that came before. And Muhammad also turns up all these fantastic 
little interviews beforehand or, or moments when he mentioned that he was working on Children of the Alley. And he was generally very circumspect about it. You know, he was asked, what is this novel about? And, he, you know, he sort of scorned, what, what, don't, don't ask me this sort of question. Um, describe the novel. No, no, no. <laughs> he didn't like talking about that. And then there's a funny story where he, one of the reasons he didn't like talking about his ideas is he, he early on as a young writer, he told somebody else about some work that he had yeah. that he was working on and he thinks the other writer stole his idea. Right. And, and so then from then on, he learned to like never talk about a work in progress. Right. Um, Although this, this might be a book that he didn't talk about while it was in progress for many other reasons as well. Be, because he knew that it would, that it contained something explosive. I mean, I think if you, if you suggested, yes. Oh, well, this is a, a book that begins when people are thrown out of the garden into the alley, um, you know, uh, and there are these sort of prophet-like figures. It's, it's better, see, it's better not to describe it in that way. I, I agree with them that this sort of boiling down of the novel really doesn't do it any favors. You know, I met Namafus once in Cairo um, many years ago before he died uh, at one of his, um, you know, these these little nadwas, these little gatherings that he would still have a couple times a week in different places. And by then he was having it in a hotel in Madi, um, you know, inside hotel security. I think he, he, he just, he stopped going to like the public places and the cafes that he loved so much um, after the attack. And uh, he was very old. He was half deaf. He was, his hand had been permanently damaged from the attack, but he was, he was, you know, alert and, uh, and, you know, making jokes and other people, especially making jokes to him. It was clear that all his old friends, the thing that they, you know, wanted the most was to get him to laugh. Um, mm. He's, he's famously someone who had a good sense of humor and a good sense of repartee and, uh, and I got introduced to him, you know, as a passing through foreign admirer. Uh, and he actually asked me, I can't remember how we got onto the topic of Children of the Alley, but he said, do you think the book is against religion? Right. And I and, sort of and stammered out, well, oh, <laughs> no, no, like, be, I mean, because I wouldn't say that per se. I mean, no, I think it's so much more not. complex yeah, right. and, and subtle than that. I, I do think the book contains a critique of the way uh, religion operates socially and politically. Right. Um, Def definitely. Definitely. But a, a critique of the essence of religion, I would say no way. Uh, I don't right. think. Right. Nigi himself was always um, a believer. I think what the people who were offended by it are those who, you know, take the view that like it is disrespectful to really like probe, you know, religious dogma or religious figures in any way. I think there's a fundamental disconnect of them not appreciating the fact that a literary work is going to play with things, with figures, with ideas um, and, uh, you know, to them, it had to, any reference basically to, to religion, to the prophet had to be done in this like very respectful way. And I don't even think that he disrespects, but I do no, think, I think to, to me, you know, there's one, right. Artistic there's liberties. One, 
there's one interview where he said something like, um, you know, the one that was headlined, you know, writer says there, you know, Mahfouz says there's no taboos. Um, he said something like, if you, you know, a scientist, if you were a scientist or a doctor, you have to be, you have to look at the body parts. You have to be honest about what's going on. You have to write the real things. And so I don't think he was ever, um, I think he just, he had to describe things in the way that he saw them. And he, he was not going to obfuscate something that seemed, you know, to, for politeness sake. I, I think, you know, there's like a certain version of adab, you know, like some of his literatures may be ill-mannered, you know, he's not hiding the dirty laundry in the way people would like. Although but I think he persona... saw that as a kind of a science, you know? Sorry. Right. No, no. I mean, he. this is one of the great fascinating contradictions with with him as a figure is that he's so quite daring in his writing but then his public persona was like very uh muadab like you know very res- right, sort of respectful right, right. of conventions i mean i think there's a bit of a miss also a, a biographical misreading of him where it's always the like later older mafuz who famously had this like very set routine and was very modest and like lived this very simple life and uh, who get, gets put forward. And he definitely, that's that's a true part of him. But I think the sort of younger artist who, you know, I think liked to party and like, like right, to he ran around with a lot of, things, of friends. Yeah. That, that gets kind of erased from the story. There's a kind of sanitized version of him, of him, uh, which is really, you know, who he was. I once say he was like really canonized. Um, right. I mean, although I do things- think that he was, he was like always, he seems to have always been this kind of worker who, you know, this, this piece published in 1958, where this interview profile by Anis Mansour, where he calls Nagib Mahfouz the train. He says, right. Nagib Mahfouz looks, which is very gently ribbing, Nagib Mahfouz looks around him, and I realize that the station bell has rung, and the train is on its <laughs> way home to eat, sleep, wake up, and start writing the first page of a long novel that he will finish after precisely two years, and whose name will be Children of the Alley. Yeah, I mean, his work ethic is also fascinating. Like, mm. his his will, his his he had this 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 drive. I mean, Shoyer has a very beautiful way of, of putting, he says... Uh, one of the things he says about Mahfouz is that Mahfouz all his life continued to resist every obstacle that might come between him and writing. Yeah. And, and, and I'm and sorry, he, we, we should note that this was translated by Humphrey Davies. I think we have neglected to mention that so far. Yeah. And it's a beautiful translation. Um, yes. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really lovely. It reads, it reads wonderfully. Um, on, on this issue of like the, this question that he always had to keep answering about like, you know, the, the religious content. The other thing that he said that I think is interesting is he said at one point, of course, the figure of Gabalawi in my novel is not God. Like I'm not trying to represent God, but he says he is just in quotation marks, God in the minds of some people. Like right. in the story, right. I mean, he's right. he's trying to represent a certain kind of of relationship, a- and then as time went by, and even a little bit at the time, this other interpretation of the work also took hold, which Mahfouz also encouraged, which was that it was more political than about religion. And the sort of one of the most explicit things he says on that front is he says. I was asking the revolutionaries, meaning the the new regime, really, of Gamal Abdel Nasser, 
do you want to take the path of the prophets or the bully boys? Bully boys is how uh, Humphrey Davies translates this, uh, the futuwa, which is this, uh, you could call it a strong man or a thug, or they're sort of the, the, the unaccountably, the people who through violence control the social space, right? And, and, and exploit the people. And they right. reoccur it's sort again of a, and again. a mafia that they extort money and, uh, right. Yes. It's a traditional figure within, within Egyptian society. And he uses it again and again to just represent, you know, basically like, you know, people whose power who use whose power is not based in legitimacy it's based in violence uh right. and and they're the ones who like enforcing each unjust regime in the in the alley um so so then the, so then it turns out that the other interpretation of the book is that it's supposed to be an implicit critique of the way the secular a secular regime is you know, uh, manipulating religion uh, is 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 in, you know allowing injustice to take place, um, and and I think that that's a valid interpretation. Although I think they actually coexist. These elements, yeah, absolutely. If you're talking about human beings and power, um, you know, both religion and the politics, all forms of society and social control come in there. Yeah. And and then and the other because thing I'd it's say, right. Go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I was just saying, you know, because it's it, he does leave it symbolic. He does leave it sort of open to be about many different forms of power to be read in many different ways now and in the future. So I think all these interpretations are um, are, are worth worth making. Yeah, and and the. The other element that is not so much an element of the book, but that this interpretive question around the book raises is the question of censorship itself. Right. So, so Mohammed Shair, you know, calls it the story of the banned book. Uh, when I met him in Cairo a few months ago, he told me it's a book about censorship. Uh, and yes. I think he feels like going back to the history of how censorship has was was instituted and practiced, you know, in in the twentieth century. Also, lets us understand how censorship continues to exist. Um, and he has one. Uh, I mean, uh, one of the many things I appreciate about the book is that he doesn't overanalyze. Like he's very clear, but he doesn't. Every once in a while, he has a little interpretive flourish, but they're kept like, you know, quite quite short. But at one point he says, children of the alley was part of a larger battle being waged at the time, the battle for the regime by the regime for religious, political and cultural hegemony over society. Individual encounters took place within the context of an ongoing struggle between the newly arrived Islamists and the non-communist secularists. The, la the latter, who would soon become the regime's left wing intellectuals, fought an unceasing series of duels with the clerics against their demand for a degree of immunity and inviolability for themselves and their profession. So, yeah, one of the things I really like about the portrait of, of censorship that he paints in this book is that it, it, it's a broad um, social phenomenon that is not, it is not like the government versus uh, the writer but that there's all sorts of people involved. There's like these 
fellow writers who become sort of potsters, um, mm. sick, you know, calling on things to be banned. He also, you know, he talks briefly about how Nizar Qabani uh, was briefly banned after his um, after his 1967 poem about the Naqsa and um, how Qabani was banned. And, and in part, you know, there were other writers demanding because he was, you know, he was, you know, criticizing uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, demanding that he be uh, blacklisted. And the, also the role, uh, which uh, something I always uh, find interesting about how the role of the printer itself, the person in the, in the um, working in the print shop was empowered to, look, you know, told, you know, look at the, the text that you're printing. This is also your responsibility. You don't want to, you know, print things that you wouldn't want your whatever sister to read. And, and so printers take on a growing role in, in also becoming a part of this censorship apparatus. Because in a way, the issue's never resolved. Like, mm. there's so much struggle over what should be censored and by who. And then there's a lot of people who want the authority to be censors, because that is a, a great power. Um, and there, there, it seems to me like, they, one doesn't arrive at a satisfying definition of what the limits, if there are any, on freedom of expression and artistic freedom should be. And so the battle keeps being fought and in a way lost. Uh, I mean, you know, there there is, if anything, through Egypt in the 80s and 90s, like uh, a drift towards um, institutions like Al-Azhar, and 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 Islamists like managing to really intimidate secular intellectuals and artists, and and now you have a regime that is extremely repressive. So again, it's not the Islamists particularly now, um, but 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 you have a incredibly strong censorship on like so many forms of of yeah, when, expression. And even to the extent that when Khaled Lutfi was was on trial, there was a sort of a ban on speaking about it that I, I got like, um, you know, private messages saying, well, you, you didn't hear this from me, but, you know, Khalid's on, on, in a, in a mili- on trial, in a military trial right now. Because I think in a way that protection and that freedom has never been fully won. And mm. that's maybe what's so compelling about this case and makes it continue to be of interest um, is is that it is that it has it has not been uh, you know entrenched and maybe it never is in in all societies there is constantly this sort of back and forth. I mean the other thing that's fascinating on the front of censorship is that Mafuz, who was you know in favor of I feel like almost nobody of his generation thought that there could be no censorship. They almost all accepted that there would be some. And, right. and Mohammed Shahir also shows how when Mafu started off his career as a young writer, he ran into censorship right away. Uh, he was told to stay away from certain topics. He had work censored. So he, he was very aware, I think, as an individual and a writer, that this force was there for him to contend with throughout his entire career. But, but then he also worked as the, as the director of the literature uh, unit in the censorship authority. Right. And then was moved into film, I think. And Although he also wrote film. for film. <laughs> he wrote right. tons of screenplays for movies. Mm. And it's really interesting because you don't, there aren't many anecdotes about him actually censoring works. His, his approach seems to have been 
to from within these institutions to be as minimalist as possible. Right, um, right. And and there's a lovely exchange where somebody asks him at one point in an interview, he was asked like what what he did censor in movies. Um, and they asked him about kissing. I guess kisses were often censored. And he says that he allowed every kind of kiss except the kiss on the neck. If the screen time was more than a minute. And, right, and, right. and then the person interviewing him said, so much for the screen. What about real life? What would Nagib Mahfouz, the human being, do if he were to see a boy and a girl snatching a kiss on the street? And he replied, nothing at all. I'd turn my face in the other direction. Then he smiled and added, if only. <laughs> and you're left wondering, what does that if only mean? Like he wishes that the, to, that the young people could kiss the kids freely are making on, the out on the street? Um, he, so again, I think the thing that I find, I mean, there's so many things I find fascinating about him, but the thing that I find fascinating about him is this determination to produce real art. And like you say, to yes. get to the heart of yes. things that were like very touchy. And at the same time, this kind of pragmatism, because he was he was so embedded in his society and so aware of how things worked, this this kind of pragmatism, yeah, of of working around what the structures were, like pushing it to the limit, but never taking publicly a, a radical and oppositional position. You know what I mean? Like doing right. it almost. Yeah, there were only very few like. Uh, you know, in a period where a writer signed so many letters and went to so many protests, he, he, he only signed very few of these. Um, and generally, yes, he put all of his, I think, his energy, his whatever radical energy, his energy of getting to the heart of things, of, of not leaving any stone unturned in his literature and maybe in his evenings with his discussions in, in evenings with his friends. Right. Yeah. I mean, he led this very compartmentalized life um, where he sort of carved out different, different, different areas for himself. Um, and of course, and I he just, had a yeah, sense of humor right. that allowed him yes, sometimes yeah. to just kind of laugh at these situations. Right. Yes. And so um, also, I think, you know, he generated a lot of, of jealousy around his work. And there were some writers who I think were very upset that they weren't banned and censored in the same way as yeah. Nagib Mahfouz, for instance. I think Yusuf Idris was very sad that his so Yusuf Idris comes <laughs> off terribly in this book, I have to say. But I think Yusuf Idris comes off pretty badly in every nonfiction work. He In Murid Barhouti's um, I Was Born Here, I Was Born There, Yusuf, Yusuf Idris comes off really badly. Even though he's super um, performatively pro-Palestine, he's also like a major coward, at least as depicted by Murid Barhouti. In this, well, and he also comes off as selfish and oh, cringy. Yeah, no, I mean, he's, and, and I, I think he is one of the greatest short story writers of Egyptian literature. I, I admire the work immensely. He was, seems to have been, you know, pathologically jealous of Mahfouz. Um, in, in later sections of the book, it gets into Mahfouz's Nobel nomination. And um, <laughs> one of the, they, Mahfouz's name kept coming up to the Nobel committee once they were sort of, they started to sort of look for a writer from the Arab world, it sounds like. 
And at one point it was Mahfouz and Yusuf Idris, like their two names were put up. And, and you know, Yusuf Idris was Well, I think there were know, probably delighted. four. There was Tayyip, right. There was Tayyip Saleh, uh, Yusuf Idris, Adonis, and Nagim Mahfouz, who were sort of in contention, supposedly. And Yusuf Idris told the person, like what the, the one of the scholars of Arabic literature in Sweden, like, forget Mahfouz, you know, give it, get it from me. And, you know, and... <laughs> And then when Mahfouz won it, attacked him in really the lowest way. I mean, because one of the few, as you say, public uh, controversial political positions that Mahfouz took was um, after the after 1967 uh, and and after Egypt had sort of the Arab armies in Egypt had had come to the realization that they could not militarily beat Israel. Mahfouz's position was that, like, we should actually negotiate a peace settlement of some kind. This was a hugely controversial position when almost every other Arab intellectual was in favor of, of not normalizing relations with Israel in any way. And, and again, it seems to have been a pragmatic one. Like, mm-hmm. why pretend to ourselves that we can win a conflict we can't? Let's accept the way things are. And Idris said, I mean, when when he won the Nobel, he got attacked. People said, oh, of course the West gave him this award because of his book, his atheist blasphemous book that attacks Islam and because of his position on Israel. And Idris said something like, I was nominated many times. Mahfouz got it because he has made peace with the Jews and does not criticize them. I mean, really went out there sort of casting aspersions. Meanwhile, you know... uh, Yusuf Idris had taken this major literary award from Saddam Hussein and went around singing his praises and wearing a watch with a picture of Saddam Hussein on it. <laughs> but I would There's just some... like to say that according to Murid Barhuti, uh, he was only performatively pro-Palestine and that he was not really, would not really put his money... Uh, where his mouth is or whatever that's saying. Right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, and he seems to have been just hugely driven by personal ambition. Um, and uh, and there's, an, there's one throwaway line in here again where other Arab writers are talking to Mahfouz about all the shit that Yusuf Idris is talking about him. And they say, well, he didn't, he didn't win the Nobel, but he won this award from Saddam Hussein and he says it's even better. Or, you know, <laughs> and, and Mahfouz says... If Yusuf Idris won it, it must be better than the Nobel. <laughs> like, it's devastating. You know, he's he's an exaggerator and a lot, you know. <laughs> and I have to say that, I mean, of course, Mohammed Sharia is partial to Mahfouz. You can tell that he really admires him. But Mahfouz comes across again and again as very likable in his, in his low keyness in these situations where a lot of people are grandstanding. And 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 being, you know, like you say, performative and polemical and jealous and so on and so forth. Um, he he always has a very sort of like, m- you know, moderate, uh, reasonable reaction to sometimes ridiculous situations. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, not nobody comes off as bad as Yusuf Tris, but right. <laughs> but certainly there are many people who try and throw other writers under the bus or, um, you know, gossip about each other uh, or, yes, terrible self-promotion, which I suppose is endemic everywhere. 
I mean, there are so many lovely anecdotes and stories in this book. And as someone who like, you know, loves Mahfouz and knows Egypt and like cannot get enough of literary gossip, I just, it, it was just a jackpot for me. And I don't know what, I'll tell you one of my favorites, but there's like a lot um, of, of these kinds of details. One is the fact that when Mahfouz was up for the Nobel, he basically the Egyptian government sabotaged his chances multiple times by like interfering too much with the process. Like Mm. the Nobel Prize Committee does not like governments to back candidates and to put pressure on them. And they were constantly trying to decide who the Egyptian nominee would be and push particular people. And this was apparently very counterproductive. And the other thing is that when he won the Nobel and they were trying to decide who should go pick it up and he had already ruled out going himself because I don't know if he's ever left Egypt, but he certainly doesn't like to. He did like go to Yemen to. once. He did go to Yemen once. <laughs> yeah. Yes, but definitely he he said something. Oh, in the same interview with Anis Mansour, he had said, I, I hate travel. It, you know, it disrupts your schedule. I right. need to be, you know, I need to be on right. my schedule. So they were going to, so, and then they tried to, he tried to select who would go and receive it for him. And the authorities again got involved and tried to, and tried to countermand his decision of who should pick up the award for right. him. He wanted and Mohammed no, Salmawi to go. And, right. and, and, and do you remember there's the anecdote where one of his nephews out of nowhere showed up at the Swedish embassy and tried to convince them to give him a visa so he could go get the Nobel. Yeah. Like without Mahfouz's permission. Um, and, and so at that point, I think he decided to send his daughters Right, right. Along with Salmawi, who Salmawi, I think, gave the talk and then his daughters were there to um, receive the award. Yes. So so he does have also this rogue family because um, how I met Mohammed Shair, who is an exceptionally generous um, journalist, was because we were both working on the story of some of Mufuz's archives in 2011, suddenly appeared at Christie's and the family, at least his daughter, you know, um, were they had no knowledge of of how it had ended up there, and as it turns out, you know some um, some you know rogue nephew uh, sold these these papers, uh, um, and we were both working on the story sort of in parallel. But also, he was so tremendously helpful, and I I don't usually work on this kind of you know investigation into you know who sold what, how did the papers end up here. Um, but I, I was, you know, so surprised pleasantly about how incredibly helpful he was. That was exactly my experience in meeting him. That mm. he, you know, he came to chat with me for several hours in downtown Cairo. Just, you know, although I imagine he's 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 very busy, and and he was just very uh, enthusiastic and sharing this incredible wealth of knowledge he has about the Egyptian literary scene and literary history. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, his knowledge of, uh, that go, the, the sort of this book does seem like, you know, it, it is rather, you know, the tip of a glacier that is underlined by so much that he is, you know, read through from all these, old sources and interviewed so many people. Um, yeah, it's based scene. on in-person interviews. Like he go, he goes and does a lot of his own interviews. There's huge archival research. Mm. Um, and, and then it's, it's also the way it's presented is, is really lovely. So, you know, 
there's these sort of not tangential chapters, but he sort of explores different facets of, I mean, there's a chapter, for example, that is dedicated to the relationship between Syed Qutb, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, right. but who started out his career as a literary critic, and Mahfouz. And it all kind of ties in because in the end, the extremists who tried to kill Mahfouz were were people who were part of the of the Islamist intellectual movement that had been established by Qutb, and yet these two men started off, uh, you know, they're they're to get you know at the same time. In fact, Mahfouz says that Syed Qutb was one of the first critics to ever pay attention and favorably review his work. It, it's a kind of extraordinary right. I, thread yeah, to I follow. Think, right. I've read some of Syed Qutb's you know, writings. And I don't, th <laughs> I don't think he was ever an extraordinary literary critic. I think he did stumble upon um, Nagim Mahfouz and recognized, yes, that, that, that he was exceptionally talented and co coincidentally <laughs> wrote about it. Um, I don't think they were ever yeah. friends. No, but again, they and certainly then did become enemies. <laughs> well, again, what Scheuer shows nicely is how different their approach to literature was. And he says that in his criticism, Said Qutb is always like basically being too rigidly ideological. Like he's mm. he's looking for a certain type of literature that embodies certain nationalist qualities. You know, back before he's an Islamist, um, and he he doesn't really like he's not really open to the full spectrum of like w what a creative work can be. He's always looking for a theory to impose on it. Even right. as a Although critic. there were a number of, there were a number of critics who sort of, you know, asked Mahfouz why his literature didn't sort of, you know, wasn't more nationalist, Arabist, didn't, you know, push forward the goals of whatever. Right. No, in fact, his literature is from beginning to end, I think, of a study of disappointment. Right. Yes. Every <laughs> single novel, it is, it, is, it is yet another one of these great enigmas is, is that, is that this, this the most famous Egyptian writer, the one who has been sort of turned into the sort of figurehead of, of Egyptian writing, wrote book after book after book about the like the, the process of people's hopes being disappointed in some way. I mean, already in the Cairo trilogy, uh, right. it's, yes. it's happening. And, and then book after book are, are, you know, Adrift on the Nile, The Thief and the Dogs. Like, if anything, they get darker um, about, you know, uh, not, they, they are not at all sort of like a celebratory um, or, 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 or rosy pictures. Um, they're, they're always about sort of like falling down to earth. Uh, in in one way or another, and I think, I mean, when I when I when I wrote a profile of him and and, and sort of looked into his biography, I mean, Nagib Mahfouz's great youthful political commitment was to the Waft Party, to the anti-colonialist party, um, and that that believed in liberal democratic politics uh, in in Egypt b before the war, and he was never. I think he experienced everything from the 1952 revolution onwards as a disappointment in his youthful political ideals. Right, right, right. Although I do think that this, you know, so as part of um, going through all the archives and going through all Mahfouz's papers, Shariud came across um, a, 
um, I think, 18 short stories that maybe were were meant, uh, it, it, they were labeled for publishing 1994, which, you know, would have obviously been derailed by, by the attack on his life, um, as well as an early autobiography that he wrote when he was sort of 18 or 19. But these this collection of stories has now been published. And I think um, I did, I, I did, you know, did feel differently about those short stories and sort of the, the frag, the very fragmentary dreamy um, uh, work that he, he did closer to the end of his life. Mm. I mean, at a certain point, he seems to have also retreated as a lot of older writers do perhaps into kind of memories and, dreams he wrote a book about his dreams right uh, right uh, um he also i think physically was incapable of the, the these like enormous sweeping books that he wrote earlier in his career i think the fragmentary nature of the later work is also a result of the body um you know right although these these of. were written i guess in you know 92 93 um before the stabbing yeah, and they are more sort of fragmentary ghosts and gin, um, and 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 there's also no way of knowing if he really intended them as finished or they were sketches that he was turning into something. I mean, the say. question of his papers is a whole other, you know, the question of right the fact that there is no there is a Nagib Mahfouz museum in Cairo that is kind of this like empty shell without a library without an archive. You know, the fact that the the family, I think, has a lot of his papers and has not found right. an institution that I, I think, you know, is willing to compensate them properly for them. And I, I think they and, and also they have concerns about his privacy. Um, I mean, one is fascinated at the idea of what Mafu's letters and journals and 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 rough drafts. What what else they 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 could reveal about him? About this, it says someone in the book says like he kept his secrets well. He was mm. a very secretive person in a way for such a right. public figure. Right, but like Um Kulthum, you know, um, she yeah. also managed her public presence despite being so immensely well known. She managed to keep her secrets. And to keep sort of this balancing edge of being an artist, but also being in this very intense relationship with the authorities, because when you became famous like that, they kind of owned you. I right. mean, yes. th there's this amazing anecdote in the book, too, where it says that twice they were on the verge of arresting Nagib Mahfouz for Children right. of the Alley and for Adrift on the Nile. At one point, the police truck was like ready to go. And in both cases, it was... Well, maybe in the first case, it was Gamal Abdel Nasser who said, no, we're not going to arrest Nagib Mahfouz. Um, but, you know, that he was that close to having a falling out uh, with the regime. And then it, there's also that scene of his funeral. And, and Shoyer says so dryly and correctly that, you know, he had the misfortune of dying under the Mubarak regime. And so he right, got yes. a cold official cortege where people weren't allowed to participate. And you couldn't really, you know, unlike the great funerals of some of the great artists before, you know, the state really owned him at the end of his life in the way that they sort of honored him. You know, it was, right. it was very like push the people away. 
Right. They uh, took control of how he would be remembered. To some, to some extent. Right. I mean, I, right. I think this book is, a, and, 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 and others uh, of, of memories about him, Gamal al-Khitani wrote a book that's all just kind of conversations with Mahfouz. It's absolutely lovely. There's, there's, this book also has a great uh, appendix. It cites a lot of other works about Mahfouz, including interviews with him right. um, yes. that are very revelatory of his personality and his thoughts and his ideas over the years. I think one can go find a much more interesting and complex picture of him. Uh, and and this, this book makes a big contribution to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, I, I mean, I like uh, Gamal Ghatani's work and uh, Raga Naqash's conversations with him as well and Mohammed Salmawi, but to me, this is the most significant work uh, about Mahfouz. And I do, uh, I had a certain disappointment, apologies to AUC Press, that it didn't come out from a, from a larger publisher. I think Samah Salim originally translated a chapter of it in 2019 and was looking for a, a, a bigger publisher, a bigger audience for it. But, but it's, it's there now. It can always be republished, co-published. Everybody can get the book now. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, credit to them for 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 taking it up because, because that is Absolutely. exactly what their what their role should be, right? Is to if if an international publisher doesn't pay attention to this, then they certainly are the ones to do so. And um, uh, I mean, it's it's I I, I don't know. Would are, is the idea that you know this is too specific to Egypt and and to and to Egyptian you know political like there's all these names and these figures um, for for an international audience to to really grasp. I I would I would say that that's wrong. Um, I mean I think uh, it's. I don't it's know. I know just, so many literary people who you know anybody who is interested in the Nobel Prize for Literature, right? And it, which is such a secretive prize. I think this is essential reading. It's um, also rare this in kind history, of digging. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely the 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 he really pursued all the avenues around this particular book and then you know things just blossom around that. Yeah. Yeah, it's his persistence really pays off and his um you know his feel for Mahfouz, I think. Yes. And like yes. you say, he's written multiple books about him. Um, he just, you know, when he does, you, you know, summarize him or some aspect of his work, it's, it's, uh, it's so right. Uh, he has another line about him where he says that he was a man, he was, Mahfouz was forbearing to all and yet in opposition to all. Right. Yes. And I think that word forbearing is so right yes. also. Yes. He was a he was a genuinely tolerant man, um, and 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 also a solitary one. Like he right. did not belong to any group. Although or he faction. was in, you know, he did, I mean, he belonged to his group of friends. He belonged very much to that group. Yeah. Yes, that was clearly um, a huge pleasure in in his life. But he did, yeah. He was, I think, genuinely tolerant of people who objected to children of the alley or other works on or religious or other grounds but you know he allowed for any manner of criticism about his work 
Yeah. And, even, and I think was okay with it, really. Yes, yes. No, I think he it wasn't uh, he wasn't particularly def- defensive of it. Um, mm. uh, I mean, he paid a terrible price for right. for it, right. and and you know, and he still wanted to talk about with me. <laughs> you know, what did right, I think? Like, what right. was the book against religion? You know, you right, know, well, he you know famously then also said, "I bet that you know this." young, whatever, television repairman or whatever it was, the young man who had never read his books. Had never read his books. And so he said, he asked his wife, can you put together some of the, a package of my books and send them to him in prison so he can. He also, he offered to twice to debate the Sheikh Svala, not debate like in a confrontational way, but to sit down with the Sheikh Svala and talk about the work. And apparently they never took him up on it. What right. he declined was they said, we'll give you permission to publish it as long as you cut out certain things that we tell you. And he right. said, absolutely right. not. I'd rather not publish it at all. Right. Um, you know, and and you see over the course of the book, like the sort of the institutional role. I mean, it is now Al-Azhar has the authority to censor any book that supposedly touches on religion. Like they have basically won that power. Right. Um and uh but there are but 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 the truth is you know everybody enjoys i mean w- seeks uh the authority to censor because like shoyer says this is a form of of power over society um anyway i i i'm a, it's one of my favorite books that i've read in the past year um i i i think it's fantastic uh and Same a for great me. addition yes i i did read it in 2018 but uh, Enjoyed it just as much reading it again in Humphrey's beautiful translation and strongly recommend it to anybody who's interested in literature, history, Egypt, the Nobel Prize, politics, society. Good gossip. Good gossip, (laughs) yes. Definitely if you like good gossip. (laughs) All right. Okay. Well, I think that wraps it up for us uh, for today. And uh, it was great talking to you about this book. Yes, lovely talking to you too. Bye. Bye.